It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, uh, we had quite the day yesterday. It was a very sombre day here at Talk TV as we covered uh, that terrible, terrible story. The murder of three people up in Nottingham. Uh, three people also in hospital injured after being struck by a car, a van rather. Uh, the man driving the van uh, is in custody. He's been uh, held under suspicion of murder. We've got some front page uh, newspapers this morning uh, which all show a terrible, terrible story about the two young people who were knifed to death uh, by this person, Barney Webber and Grace O'Malley Kumar, both 19-year-old university students who were walking home after having been to a nightclub, like you do when you're 19. Uh, suddenly they came upon a very violent man with a knife uh, who knifed them both to death around about 4am uh, in the morning yesterday. Um, it's a terrible, terrible, tragic story. Uh, we'll be bringing you the latest from Nottingham today. Uh, we'll bring you the latest from the police and what they know and what they've told us. What we do know about the assailant is that he's originally uh, from West Africa. Uh, he doesn't appear to have a criminal record. He's being described as a low-level drug dealer. Uh, we'll bring you all the details on it, as I say, throughout the course of the day. William Clouston is here from the SDP. Uh, we'll be talking it through with him. Uh, every parent's a nightmare to uh, get that phone call from the police to say that your children are not going to be coming home ever. Absolutely awful. Horrendous. Uh, we'll also be talking this morning about a great many other things. Migration continues apace. The weather has now put a turn. The tide has turned, in fact, uh, and it's gone back to uh, a large number of migrants coming here. More than 1,200 migrants arrived uh, in the UK on small boats in the last three days. The weather has been very clement for them, uh, and I'm afraid the Just Stop Boats campaign uh, is not working terribly well. Carolyn McCall is also up uh, in front of the Parliamentary Committee this morning, ITV's CEO. The boss uh, who has presided over all sorts of uh, wrongdoing at uh, ITV, including the latest scandal with Philip Schofield, including, of course, the death of Caroline Flack, the firing of Piers Morgan, the Jeremy Kyle situation, all sorts of uh, situations that she has been the chief of ITV over. She's being quizzed by the media culture and sport committee uh, basically on safeguarding and what she was doing at ITV and how she was safeguarding employees uh, in the wake of the Schofield scandal. Uh, much, much more besides, of course. We'll be talking uh, to Holly Hudson live in Nottingham, as I said. Uh, we'll also have um, uh, and Tom Hunt, who's going to be here as well. He'll tell us about Just Stop Oil. They've put some new laws in place, uh, which will hopefully mean the police can now arrest the Just Stop Oil people wherever they go slow marching, whether it's around London or whether it's around anywhere else. Dr. Rakiba San is here. Tim Luckhurst is here as well. Annabelle Denham from the Daily Telegraph will also give us her view uh, on the COVID inquiry uh, and also on the latest nonsense uh, from City Hall here in London where um, Sadiq Khan has told his employees you can't call people ladies and gentlemen and as if all that wasn't enough we've got Prime Minister's questions as well for heaven's sake 0344 499 1000 is the number this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham let's get it on Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place to get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Looking at the front pages of the papers this morning, I'm just going to show you a couple of them. Knife to death in Rampage. I mean, two incredibly 
young people, 19 years of age, at the very beginning uh, of their lives. In the midst of that picture is, of course, the forensic scene as a van uh, which was uh, fired at by police, we understand, um, and a man was arrested after being tasered um, at around about 5.30 in the morning, yesterday morning. We were all pretty much in shock as we covered it yesterday. What we now know uh, is that three people have died, two of them, these two young students, um, whose parents have issued statements today, and it really is quite heartbreaking. William Clouston's here. You've got kids, William, as, yeah. as I have. It must be the worst possible feeling that anybody could ever have when you realise that your children are never coming home. It's absolutely heartrending. Absolutely heartrending. Mm. You know, and the, the, this lad, you know, he's got a little brother as well. Um, it's difficult to put it into words, actually. I think, it, you know, it's, it's the, the very worst thing. It is your worst nightmare. Mm. And any parent seeing those photographs of those... Yeah. young kids and there'll be that. lots of conversations going on about um, <clears throat> you know the assailant where he comes from what what he did before we've mm. got various different reports that he was a man with a violent past that he came here as a legal migrant we don't yeah. know whether he did that whether he came as a legal migrant or came as an illegal migrant became legal supposedly from West Africa mm. um, he's described as a low-level drug dealer mm. but I said this last week that we're living mm. now in a world in Britain where everything is kind of very much on edge where there are things happening that didn't used to happen yeah um, violent robberies going on in broad daylight mm. you know people having watches snatched off their wrists people getting beaten up mugged yeah shoplifting mm. really, you know we saw what happened in France and I think yeah. everybody went thank goodness that didn't happen here but everybody kind of went well, it probably could. Well, it, and it does. And actually. it has. And it does, and it does. So, you, you know, you've, you've had incidents. There is a sort of pattern here, I think. I mean, I've said before, I think we have a completely reckless uh, policy on uh, migration anyway. Yeah. And the politicians have forgotten about basics, safety, public safety, how, how we are as a society. And, yeah, I mean, it's not. There is a pattern here because we've, we've seen it in London. We've seen it in Bournemouth. Man, a young man was stabbed to death. Yeah. Uh, Glasgow and France, all over Europe, this is happening, and um, and still it, nothing is done to stop the illegal migration. Twelve hundred migrants arriving in Britain on small boats in just three days, mm. uh, five hundred forty-five on Monday alone. Mm. Crossings now at their highest level since November. Sorry, it was only last week, wasn't it? That Rishi Sunak said, "Oh, we've reduced the number by twenty percent." Well, he, I mean, he, he can't. He, I don't think he's got any chance of succeeding. Uh, you know, putting into action what he's putting out. I've said before, things like Rwanda are just just a publicity stunt they're not serious i was quite surprised that he actually made this pledge because unless he is prepared to take emergency powers and do something that is a game changer mm. some western country has to do something that changes the uh, the offer at the moment i've said before the offer is utterly it's irresistible you get here you stay here uh, as long as that's the case he'll have plenty of people across the channel and yeah, the public safety is at risk. Mm. They haven't vetted any of these people, uh, and you will unfortunately, unless we wise up, we, we're going to get more tragedies of this type. Um, it is it is a difficult case. I mean, I, I always I always avoid talking in detail about particular cases, but in general, let's say if you have if you have individuals here that are foreign nationals and it's known they are low level drug dealers or yeah. something like that, what are they doing here? Yeah, why, why can't they, they deported? be deported? Yeah. Uh, well, we're not very good at, you know, we have 12,000 foreign nationals in our prisons uh, and there's a pipeline of foreign nationals that come out of prison mm. after they, and, and they're not removed in any, I mean, it's a few hundred are removed. Um, but yeah, I, we'll, we'll see. I Listen, Mike, we, the government took emergency action during the pandemic and I think the channel migrant situation is an emergency. Yeah, and absolutely. Any, any, uh, if you had a policy, for instance, of any, any unsolicited arrival, um, is met with a penalty of two years in prison, then deportation, it would stop. Mm. But they, they don't have the will. Actually, and they don't have the facilities, they then built the facilities. Well, I think they're going to have to find the will because people are getting bloody angry about what's going on. Um, let's take a little break from that, though. Uh, we're heading over to uh, the Culture, Media and Sport Committee. Carolyn McCann, Dame Carolyn McCall, rather, no less, uh, is going to be speaking uh, right now. That's Dame uh, Carolyn McCall answering questions from Dame Caroline Dynage. A lot of dames around the, the here this morning. Um, we're with William Close. I know this is not particularly your bag, William, but it's quite mm. an important story, this, for the purposes of the modern media landscape, not least because there's the head of ITV explaining how they had this duty of care for at least two to possibly three years mm. over this person X, mm. um, and yet they didn't think it was serious enough to ask Philip Schofield to stand aside for no. a while while he's 
uh, health was in question. Mm. They didn't seem to think it was in any way a true story, despite the fact that they were warning this person about the media intrusion. Mm. Why would there be media intrusion if it wasn't a true story? Well, there's a lot of... A lot of ifs, ands, or buts. A lot of post-hoc firefighting going on now, after the event. I think so. I mean, it does raise some broader issues about, uh, you know, how much an employer is responsible for the actions of the employees in the office, you know, and it's always difficult. I mean, you get this in city firms, cases all the time, so... I think look at the CBI. I think, yeah, the CBI is a disaster now, isn't it? Mm. I mean, might might as well just shut up shop, close it down. Yeah, but I I would always, before, yeah... It's it's interesting. It, it's it's a good idea sometimes for people to step back from some of these things. And say, okay, you know, if there were incidents that were appalling, they're mm. appalling, right? But these are large organisations, and you know, most people that turned up at the CBI and did their job uh, are not culpable at all. No. You know, it's nothing to do with them. They're just doing doing their yeah. job. And then the whole the whole. No, I mean, gets... I would personally shut the CBI down just for the pur- pur- purposes of it being useless as yes. well. I mean, it's not, just, yeah, yeah. it's not just because yeah. they had some jiggery-pokery going on. Yeah. But the thing about this to me as well uh, is that part of the reason why ITV is under so much scrutiny mm. is because they've created this world mm. in which they believe everything to be rosy in the garden because it's That's their right. garden and they yes. keep telling us all, oh, it's such a lovely family uh, so this virtuous. morning. Well, yeah. it, seems to, it seems to me as though they were spending half their time interviewing Person X and Philip Schofield about this story that wasn't true. Let's go back and see Carolyn McCall talking a bit more. Mm. not to investigate something... Watching the um, uh, appearance by Dame Carolyn McCall and Kevin Ligo and Kyla Mullins from ITV in front of that uh, select committee. We've just lost the feed there for a moment. But uh, extraordinary things being said by uh, all three of them, really. Dame Carolyn McCall saying she hasn't spoken to Philip Schofield since um, his statement that he lied to everybody and he was very sorry. He sent her a text message saying he was very sorry. Uh, said that um, uh, she was worried about his uh, personal welfare, that she was worried that he might kill himself effectively, although she didn't want to compare him to Caroline Flack, then saying, basically, um, that she uh, felt very bad about everything, but didn't mind when Holly Willoughby came along and threw him under the bus, basically, when she came back uh, to show to front the uh, this morning show on her own. So uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, just before we do, uh, William Clouse is still here. Let's talk briefly about the COVID inquiry, which mm. kind of kicked off yesterday. We didn't really get a chance to talk about it yesterday. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that they're focusing already on all the wrong things. Well, it's it's I, it's going to be very very long processes, and and I think the, the you'll get better papers and reports on key findings like access deaths well before this inquiry uh, reports. You know, which you could, you know several several years. Interestingly, we actually the SDP had an event uh, last night in London with mm. uh, Professor Toby Green, who's written a book called The COVID Consensus. Very good book, uh, worth reading about just how all the established protocols and ideas were just collapsed. Mm. And then very, very few people contested uh, the narrative, and those that did contested were were attacked and vilified for doing so. But actually, you know, a lot of... It's, a, it's an instructive book, and we had a really good session with uh, yeah. Professor Green. OK. Yeah. yeah. We're going to go back now. We've got the feedback uh, on the Schofield scandal. Interestingly enough, um, ITV appears to be using lockdown as an excuse for... Um, uh, not really talking to It'll anybody be because everybody everything. got sent home. Yes. Let's go back to Dame Carolyn McCall. We'll uh, keep you informed uh, of this Schofield uh, hearing that's going on uh, as we speak down there in the Culture, Media and Sport Committee. William Clouston is here, though. Let's talk a bit about Just Stop Oil, something mm. else that happened overnight last night, um, which we haven't yet addressed. This is the new law that's come into place, which allows the police to mm. presumably, we would hope, move them on if they start doing this slow marching again. Yeah, I mean, the problem here was that the interpretation of the Human Rights Act and the European Convention, uh, in, that and the Public Order Act, um, meant that the police had to wait basically 15 minutes before they intervened. And 15 minutes, of course, was enough for Just Stop Oil to irritate yes. people and get the coverage they wanted. And to stop the traffic, And stop the traffic and cause uh, danger and harm to people. So it's this interpretation of serious disruption to the life of the community and the government's issued a statutory instrument, which you can't change. It's not... I mean, that, that should... That might well do it, Mike, actually. I mean, a lot of people have said in the past that the police could interpret other bits of legislation and move them on, mm. but, and it didn't happen. But maybe it'll happen this time. Um, well, I'd the re- police have often said in their own defence that it's not been very clear what the law is. They can't now say that anymore because the law is now very clear. Very the clear. law now says if anybody's blocking traffic, whether they're doing it slowly yeah. or doing it deliberately and, and permanently, yeah. then they can be arrested. 
Yeah, and they should be, and uh, they and the police will also know that the government actually want them to act on this, and that you know there's no delay. Um, it's interesting that Unheard had a piece on this, and did you realise that people are aware that ten thousand police uh, shifts per month is consumed mm. by just well, we were given the the, the 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 amount just the other day, four yeah. and a half million quid spent from mm. April um, to I think the end of May. Yeah, uh, just on just stop oil. Well, how anti-social is that? Well, it's very when you've got when you've got you know muggings, stabbings, burglaries, and they're consuming yeah. you know, literally thousands of hours of time on this. Very selfish. They've made their point. I mean, they have to. Uh, bright side for them is that the uh, Just Stop Oil have changed the law. They've got this statutory instrument in. Yes, and it might uh, it might the law against themselves. Yeah, it might actually deal with it. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Let's talk about Donald Trump. We've got a, a clip, I think, from Donald Trump. His appearance yesterday in a Miami court. Um, once again, um, being branded a criminal. Um, people saying, oh, it's the first time this has ever happened. The first time a president of the United States has found himself facing federal charges, mm. which these are. Uh, depending on who you talk to, of course, uh, they're serious and they could put him in jail. Or it's another political witch hunt. Let's have a look at what he said uh, to his adoring supporters afterwards. Donald Trump goes from strength to strength. I mean, you know, he didn't get a mugshot taken. Um, a lot of people will say that, you know, presidents are allowed to take documents with them. Mm. The one thing that he seems to have done that others haven't done uh, is he pretended he didn't have some documents. Mm. But it does look more like a witch hunt. And bizarre, my favourite part of this story is that if he does find himself uh, guilt, uh, found guilty and he does go to jail, he can still be president. Yeah, no, it's a paradox. I mean, clearly, I mean, he's yeah, possessing and concealing official papers. I don't know how many other previous presidents took... Uh, bits and pieces from the White House after they finish it. I have no idea. Uh, I know that the obviously some his political opponents um, are desperate that he's indicted, and it's, it's it's probably a way. It's seen as a way of stopping him succeeding politically. But the paradox, the difficulty for them, the bind for them, is that the more they do this, the more his core is rallied, mm. and actually the more fundraising he does, and the more exposure he gets. And the more popular he gets with the base, I'm not a Trump fan. I, I I'd prefer DeSantis or someone else more sensible to take over. Mm. But uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he looks he's, unstoppable. He's quite a long way ahead in the polls. Yeah, yeah, and he's you know in, in the Republican Party. How can he? How can he not win? I mean, it's you know. And you hear people saying, um, you know, so-called pundits saying things like, "Well, of course, once they find out what Donald Trump's done, his fans will desert him." No, they won't. No, that's not happening. <laughs> this is the paradox, mate. So get, take yourself back to the presidential election, which he won. In the week before the presidential election, there was this tape of his, uh, you know, descriptions of, of attacking women, basically. Made no difference. And people people voted for him. Yeah. So this is the paradox. They can attack him. They can try and indict him. But his core base is there. So I expect he will be the Republican candidate. And I don't know what the Democrats will do. I mean, Biden is a disaster area. He really is. And he's not in control. Uh, so it's just a bore reflection on... American politics, this. It really is. I think that's the problem, that it makes America look uh, amateurish and just very, very bad at running a country. It's a real pity. It really is. Absolutely dreadful. Anyway, William, listen, sorry we had to interrupt all of that uh, Carolyn McCall stuff, but quite interesting on the Philip Schofield scandal. I think there's more to come from that particular story. William, we'll speak to you again very soon. Uh, We're going to talk to Tom Hunt MP coming up shortly, Conservative MP for Ipswich. We're going to go up to Nottingham to see what the latest is there uh, on the murder case. And, of course, we'll take your calls as well. So don't forget to make them. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, here's one from Dean in Oxford. He says, I genuinely believe this country will one day sooner rather than later explode with rage. We have an immigration problem that our self-serving MPs don't seem interested in solving. We have a capital that's run by a clown and is in absolute meltdown. We have murderers roaming our streets, stabbing innocent people to death. We have a police force that seem incapable of enforcing the law. The list just seems to be endless. Normal people are getting angrier by the week. The UK is a ticking time bomb and it's not going to be long before it explodes with civil unrest. I think that speech from Dean there in Oxford um, will probably um, resonate with an awful lot of people listening uh, to this show and watching this show this morning. Let's talk to Tom Hunt, MP, Conservative MP uh, for Ipswich, a man that we've spoken to many times in the past and who I think understands the plight of the ordinary working man and woman of this country. Tom, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for joining us. I mean, Dean, I think, speaks for a lot of people, uh, particularly how we're all feeling after what happened yesterday in Nottingham. Um, when we see more figures from uh, the channel migrant problem growing once more, 1,200 people coming in the last three days. 
Um, there is a sense, and I, I said this last week on my show, of, of, of a sort of an, a country kind of on the edge in terms of law and order, in terms of uh, the crime rates, in terms of, you know, the kind of brazen behaviour that's going on from the thuggery element of this country. Um, and it feels like a dangerous place to be at the moment. Um, yes, you know, I, I, I can understand his concerns. I mean, I'm in my own constituency uh, in Ipswich, you know, when, when I when I knock on doors, which is regularly, um, you know, I do often hear from constituents who, who say that they rarely go into the town centre anymore um, because they don't feel safe and secure doing so. So it's, it's, it's not nice to hear that, but it is what I hear very often. So um, we, we've got a huge situation with the small boat crossings. Um, we have passed, we are passing laws to try and deal with it, but we really need to start to see action. And we, we may do soon with the Rwanda flights. I mean, the appeal court are very close to coming to a verdict about whether those flights can go ahead. Hopefully, if we get a green light, we, we may even see some of those flights going off um, late summer, early autumn. And, you know, I've always been clear that to deal with a small boat issue, you need to have a major deterrent. Uh, and potentially this could be it. Um, but I think we'll probably have to have partnerships with other mm. safer countries as well. Um, with regards to the protest situation, I mean, I did a PMQ only f- three weeks ago about this. You know, we've, we've passed laws to give the police the powers they need to immediately disperse these reckless protesters. There are many occasions where the police are doing that, but sadly, still some occasions where they're not. Um, that is unacceptable. They should be consistent in the moment these people get onto the public highway, they need to be turfed off immediately. They should, exactly right. But one of the things we've heard a lot uh, in the past, Tom, is that the police are a bit confused about what the law is. I mean, now that the law has basically gone through both Houses of Parliament, there's no need for that confusion anymore, so they can't use that excuse. I agree. We, we passed the police courts and sentencing bill um, quite a long time ago now. And, the, and one of the things that that bill looked to do was give the powers, powers they need in this space. Uh, the police said that they needed further clarification. Therefore, we've now passed a Public Order Act to give them that clarification. There is no excuse for them not to be taking a robust approach uh, with these individuals. Uh, I can absolutely share their great anger and frustration and their daily activities disrupted by these self-righteous, um, reckless individuals. Um, and I, I, I want to come down and harden them as just about as much as possible. Yeah. And one of the things we were quite angered about the other day was the news that um, the policing of these Just Stop All protests since April uh, through to the end of May is something like four and a half million quid. I suggested that we should go and ask Dale Vince for that money instead of giving it to the Labour Party and give it to the cops. Well, it is interesting, of course, that the Labour Party um, have received a a very significant donation by the same individual who gives gives significant donation to Just Stop Oil. I think that's very telling. I also think it's very telling that the Labour Party have fought the Public Order Act at every single stage. They voted against it, just like the Labour Party have voted against every measure to tackle illegal migration. Their position and their history on these issues is very, very clear. Yes, it does ultimately fall to the government to sort these issues. I'm not making excuses. But I do think it's legitimate for me to point out where the opposition stand on these issues, because, of course, they are looking to become a government. Um, and it's and it's really important that people are acutely conscious that this is a party that backs reckless protesters over hardworking people. It backs illegal migrants over those who want control of our borders. I will make that case time and time again. I mean, even locally, we've got a Labour candidate who's uh, about as, you know, liberal left on this on these issues as you could possibly imagine, to the point where he's actually made trips to Calais right. to encourage it. It's an extraordinary situation. But it falls to the government to deal with this issue. And we've been talking about it for a long time, passing laws for a long time. We need to see action. Yeah, absolutely right. Because the trouble with the left is that they seem to think that unbridled immigration is a great idea when it clearly isn't. You know, we've got all sorts of problems in this country, uh, whether they be uh, of, in, of, of administration, uh, of the NHS waiting lists, of you know school places, of available housing, of any number of things that you could pick um, a number out of the out of the air and say, you know, there's too many people already trying to get too many uh, too many things from too small a number, and it doesn't work like that anymore. You can't just keep saying. Whoever wants to come here can come. And legal migration as well, 1.2 million, you know, it's not sustainable. Well, I mean, obviously, illegal migration is totally unacceptable. And, ev- and everyone, and my view's always been if you break our immigration law, it's the same as breaking any other law and you should be treated as such. But with regards to legal migration, yes, I agree, it's a far too high a level. Um, I think you'd struggle to find 
you'd struggle to find 10% of the electorate who'd probably support net migration being at 600,000. Um, we need to, we can't shut the British public out of the debate about legal migration and the kind of levels we want it to be at. I think most people want some legal migration, uh, but they want it to be at sustainable levels. It's also really important when we talk about migration that we view it in the round. We don't mm. just view it in terms of GDP figures, but we view it in terms of um, cultural and social consequences, pressure on public services, housing, all of these different things. But ultimately, it's very undemocratic. Um, nobody's ever had a say on this. If somebody believes that net migration being at 600,000 is okay, then they should go and make that case to British people. Uh, um, I think I think they'd be given pretty short shrift, to be honest. Yeah. But no, it's, it's, I've always been clear that illegal migration matters immensely, but so does getting legal migration mm. at more sustainable levels and at levels of British public and support. Yeah, I think the point is, is at the moment people are struggling. Uh, they're struggling to get doctor's appointments. I mean, we've got another doctor strike today. Junior doctors out on strike. So there'll be hundreds of thousands of people who can't get the help that they were supposedly going to get today because their procedures have been cancelled. You know, and it doesn't really help that more and more people are using the services that they're trying to access. It doesn't help that more and more people are coming here with their families and they can't get kids into school spaces. You know, there's, there's a finite number in almost every part of this country for everything that we do. No, I mean, it's, 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 I think certainly with, with 2019 Conservative voters, I think immigration is now right up there with sort of cost of living in the yeah. economy in terms of being a, a key issue. For me, it, this motivates me greatly. I think there's a real sense of unease when we don't feel like we've got control of our borders. I also think this, with regards to illegal migration, there's a really important point here, which is that for every, and invariably these are young single men, yeah. so about 70, over 70% are, they've, they've been shopping between multiple safe European countries. Uh, and actually, we do want to be generous generous to um, genuine refugees. We want to be able to do that. But we've got a limited ability. We've got to cap the number. We've got a limited ability to accommodate uh, you know, huge numbers. So it's right that we prioritise those who are genuine refugees, largely women and children. Problem is that for every, every um, bloke who turns up from France illegally, it's probably realistically one less person we can support who's a genuine refugee. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've actually spent three times, I've gone to the Rohingya refugee in ba camp in Bangladesh. I'm very pro us being generous to refugees. Problem is, a lot of these blokes are coming over from France and working directly against their interests. Right. Well, yeah, because the more illegal people that come here, the yeah. less room we have for anybody else. Definitely, 100%. You know, but we've got the situation in... Uh, in Ipswich, where we've got uh, a hotel, um, a four-star hotel, slap bang in the middle of the town centre, filled up with those who have come here illegally. Ipswich Town had just been promoted to a championship. Great news for Ipswich Town, great news for the hospitality sector in Ipswich, but we, we don't have enough hotel accommodation. Yeah. But, that's gov have... but that's government policy, though, Tom. Well, it, it, it is, but it's also government policy to end it as soon as possible. And I actually welcome things like, you know, making sure you've got three or four in a room. We saw that ridiculous protest outside that hotel. Unbelievable. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary situation. I mean, if these are genuinely people who have, fought, have, have fled war-torn war sort of situations, you'd welcome um, sharing a, a room in a four-star hotel in central London. But clearly it begins to indicate that perhaps they're not actually genuine no. refugees, perhaps they're economic migrants. And ultimately, if, if, you know, if they want to move to the UK for, um, to, to better yourself, you know, that, that kind of aspiration is fine, but apply legally through our point-based yeah. immigration. And I always say to people, you know, these uh, do-gooders who say, oh, there's no legal routes for them to come. Well, there are actually. Well, how is it that 1.2 million people managed to come legally uh, if there are yeah. no legal routes. There are plenty of legal routes. But, they choose but, not to use them. Oh, but this, this, this argument about safe and legal routes, I mean, ultimately, they'll never say whether they should be capped or not. The reality is that we've got, um, you know, huge numbers of people potentially, um, you know, getting to sort of tens of millions across the world who could conceivably claim refugee status. We cannot take all of them. We could only take a very small percentage mm. of that number. So ultimately, you're talking about you need to have a cap. And if you have a cap, you need to prioritise. And a priority is not young single men who have fled from France. They are not the priority. Um, but, you know, I, for me, this is, this is one of the most important issues for me. You know how, how, how intensely I've been campaigning on this. Um, to be fair, though, Rishi, you know, the illegal migration bill is about the most robust bill there's ever been presented to the House of Commons. But of course, you've got all these, as you say, it's just been in the House of Lords, the illegal migration bill. And I've seen the Archbishop of Canterbury wade into the debate quite clumsily. You know, it's very easy just to be, you know, just to moralise and, and not actually have to deal with a very complex situation and come up with practical solutions. And the other thing about the Archbishop of Canterbury and people like him, 
when they lambast the Rwanda plan. They have they don't have their own plan at all. Mm. I mean, if they said, well, the Rwanda plan is terrible, but here's another plan, and this is how it would work, and it would work, and this is how it would work, but they don't do that. Well, I've, got, I've got a suggestion for Archbishop Wokeby, as I call him. Uh, spend some of that hard-earned money uh, that they've got sitting in investment funds all over the place and build some houses on all the land that they own, and they could house about 100,000 migrants, and that would be the end of that problem. But, uh, you know, don't suppose you'll take my advice. Listen, Tom, got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Hunt, Conservative MP for Ipswich. Uh, we've got lots more to do, lots more to talk about. Coming up uh, in the next hour, Rakiba San is here. He's going to talk about why the left doesn't understand the ethnic minority community in this country. We'll talk more about not. And of course, we'll talk about net zero. This is Talk TV. Uh, but yes, the statements from uh, the parents of the, the two dead students, absolutely horrific. And also we've now found out that the identity uh, uh, and the occupation of the third victim uh, we'll bring you more from Nottingham later on as soon as we get any further information, of course. Right now, let's talk to Dr. Raki Bassan, author of Beyond Grievance, because uh, uh, he's got a new book out which talks about why the left get it all wrong about ethnic minorities. Raki, very good morning to you. Um, morning, Mike. How are you? Uh, not bad. Let's start with um, uh, what happened in Nottingham yesterday. I mean, people were rightly very angry, people were very upset. Um, when the news came out that this is um, some kind of um, West African migrant, we're not sure whether he came here legally and then became uh, a legal um, uh, migrant or whether he came here legally in the first place. Uh, there's talk of him having uh, mental health problems, but nobody really knows if that's true. There's talk of him uh, being a low-level drug dealer, which apparently is true. There's talk of him having a violent past. You know, I mean, once again, it puts the focus of all of this violent Britain that we're suffering from uh, on the government, isn't it? No, absolutely, Mike. And what I found incredibly disappointing are the reactions to reports that uh, the person, uh, the individual behind this uh, horrific, uh, horrific act uh, is reportedly a West African migrant. People are saying, oh, you know, we need to be careful here uh, in how this may possibly stimulate forms of racism and discrimination almost modicoddling uh, racial minorities living in the UK to the extent that um, the, the facts in, the, in this tragic case shouldn't be accurately reported, mm. Mike. Uh, the, uh, my focus is on the victims, uh, to which promising students, both 19 years of age. Uh, it seems like more of their certain people, especially the Progressive Activist Brigade, who seem to be more focused on hiding the identity yeah. of perpetrators if it doesn't nestle in with their racial identity politics. I find it shameful. It really is shameful, but it's also completely utterly against any kind of ethical journalism that we practice in mm. this country. Um, because if it was the other way around and you didn't identify people because you thought it might upset someone, you know, it's our job as journalists to get to the truth. And if the police don't want to release the truth, um, then I'm afraid we have to find it in some other way. And for the police to continually say things like, please don't speculate on what could have happened, well, then give us some information. No, absolutely. And I think what you've touched upon there is the importance of journalistic integrity. Uh, I think that when we're looking at modern-day British context, I think you have almost that industry of racial outrage, almost. But when you have these kind of horrific incidents, I do think it is important to accurately report the facts because if you don't, that actually potentially fuels misinformation mm. and disinformation. Yeah. So uh, so it, by doing that, it, it's actually counterproductive. And I say, I say once again, when it comes to uh, cases such as, such as this, it's vitally important that, uh, that the facts are accurately reported and people shouldn't be blanketing important bits of information just because they feel uncomfortable with it because they're ultimately have this identitarian perspective where everything is seen through the prism of race. Exactly right. And you've written a new book called Beyond Grievance, What the Left Gets Wrong About Ethnic Minorities. And you've spoken uh, to me, Rekib, many times about mm. um, the misconceptions that the left kind of seem to have, that they think all people from an ethnic minority background are left wing, which they certainly are not. Um, and, and that they all will inevitably vote Labour, which they certainly will not. No, absolutely. And Mike, but I'd just like to personally thank you on there for all the support that you've given to me over the years and given me a platform to discuss these kind of issues. Yeah, now you're everywhere. You can't stop that. <laughs> start, can't get away from seeing you. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And I think just following up on um, what, what the tragic uh, incident that took place in Nottingham, uh, many traditional ethnic minorities are deeply conservative when it comes to law and order. Yeah. And I think that, that that's often missed. And I think that more generally, when it comes to issues such as immigration, law and order and extremism, they hold deeply conservative, security oriented views. Yeah. And I think that's why I argue in the book that what, what you have in the Labour Party, I think that there's far too many liberal left, liberal left activists. Mm. They have far too much power and influence within the party. And, and I think that what, what we need to see, there needs to be a reorientation of policy thinking, which goes in a more conservative direction, because that would help the Labour Party re-engage with those culturally conservative voters, which you do find in ethnic and religious yes. uh, minority communities the country yeah well very traditional families many of them voted for brexit as well uh, which again is something which is not often spoken about Absolutely. And I think the point that I make in the book is that people are still surprised, Mike, when I tell them that one in three ethnic minority voters voted to leave the European Union. Uh, uh, My hometown of Luton, as you know, has has a very high uh, ethnic minority population, uh, delivered a leave vote of 56.5%. You have other places like Bradford, uh, Birmingham even voted uh, leave, which many people still surprised when I tell them about Mm. that. And I think when it comes to, uh, for example, EU freedom of movement, there were uh, migrants living in the UK with a subcontinental background. We thought, that, hang on, it's predominantly white European migrants who are the beneficiaries mm. of preferential treatment under EU freedom of movement. Uh, many have a strong British identity. They have a strong attachment to their faith and they'll have a, a natural affection for their country of origin outside the EU. So they didn't really have much of a strong European identity. Mm. And I think something that would be worth noting, Mike, uh, very quickly is that a lot of the pro-EU movements I'd say they were predominantly white British. I wouldn't say they were ethnically or racially diverse, but only stretched the imagination. And I think that's a point that um, others have made. And I think that's really important yeah. to recognise. Yeah, those pro-European marches that used to march around London every weekend. Absolutely. Very, very, very monocultural indeed. Uh, just breaking news now. School caretaker Ian Coates has been named as the third victim of the attacks. He was the man uh, who had his van stolen, the van uh, that was eventually uh, used as the uh, as the weapon, if you like, uh, to then run over over three further people in Nottingham yesterday morning. Uh, Rakeem, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Beyond grievance, what the left gets wrong um, about ethnic minorities out there now uh, in hardback, uh, published today. Um, and you can get your hands on it uh, by all the normal places, published by uh, a publishing company called Forum uh, Books. And you can go and find that uh, today. 0344 499 1000. We'll take some calls coming up very shortly. Also, we'll talk to Tim Luckhurst, Professor uh, of Media Studies. Uh, we'll get his view on Dame Carolyn McCall and what's going on uh, at the Cultural Media and Sport Committee. Welcome back to the Independent Republican. Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock, of course. The breaking news this hour uh, is that school caretaker Ian Coates has been named as the third victim of those attacks in Nottingham yesterday. Uh, he's a school caretaker in his 60s. He was found fatally stabbed in Magdala Road in the early hours of Tuesday morning. We also believe that the assailant, excuse me, the assailant, the man who has been arrested uh, under suspicion of murder, uh, also stole Ian Coates's van uh, and then drove off at high speed, um, injuring a further three people uh, in another attack uh, in another location. Uh, also, we know that two of those um, victims as well on the front pages this morning uh, already uh, have been named. They are two 19-year-old students who were walking home innocently from um, a trip to a nightclub, Barney Webber and Grace Kumar. Um, both killed uh, in the early hours of the morning in Nottingham yesterday. Um, Let's talk now to Rupert Darwell, author of Green Tyranny, on another subject that has come across the desk this morning because uh, we talk all the time about net zero. Uh, I've actually got a piece of the Telegraph online uh, at the moment going on about it um, and why Keir Starmer needs to ditch the net zero plan that he's got uh, if he wants to win the next election. But uh, the latest ridiculous story that we've got here is that the National Grid was forced to fire up two coal power stations um, after solar panels failed to work. Why? Because of the heat, apparently. Rupert, this is mad, isn't it? I mean, surely, I mean, people have said to me, um, we've got solar panels in the Middle East, we've got solar panels in places like Turkey. They don't seem to fail because it's too hot. Why do they fail in this country? 
Good morning, by the way. Yeah, it's a bit like um, good. Good morning, Mike. It's a bit like uh, the, the railway, the rail system, isn't it? Where yeah. we have a bit of a bit of warm weather and the the the, the rails buckle and the and, and train services get cancelled. But I think, Mike, what it does hi- uh, highlight is that two coal step fire power stations have been fired up in 2023, 2024 next year. Those coal fire power stations are being taken off the grid because Britain. Uh, has been boasting about powering past coal, so those those coal-fired power stations won't be available to to to, to uh, bundle us out of of tricky situations mm. when wind and solar aren't working. Yes, and that is the problem with renewable energy, isn't it? Because when it doesn't work, they have to go back to the coal, or they have to go back uh, to some other form of what might be regarded as fossil fuel, because in the end, that's more reliable. Because here we are, in supposedly 2023, having reached a level of civilization that doesn't involve living like a caveman. Yeah, that's absolutely right. What we're doing is we're making our society like those in the past where we were exposed to the weather. I mean... in, in 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 medieval Britain or whatever, uh, you were exposed to the elements mm. and 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 horrible it was too. Now we're making our a civilized society dependent on the weather to generate energy. And at the same time, climate activists are saying, by the way, climate change is going to make the the weather more extreme and less predictable. So what we're going to make ourselves more dependent on the weather, right? And that's really ridiculous because the weather, as you know, in this country, Rupert, is not particularly great. Um, But we're told now that there's water shortages in Scotland because it hasn't rained very much. But we also know that every water company in the land seems to leak more water into the uh, the ground than actually prepare it uh, for servicing taps. And, you know, the sort of inefficiency is quite mind boggling. I can only assume that the inefficiency of solar powered farms is also not equally bad. Yeah, what 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 you have so in California where they ha- they have a lot of solar, there's this what what you have in on hot days, and there are quite a few of those in in California. So uh, electricity demand rises through the day as it gets hotter and hotter, mm. and then suddenly in the evening the sun goes down. Solar solar generated electricity plummets, so they have to fire up a lot of gas generation and so forth, mm. and we'll have that kind of problem here so you cannot do without coal or without natural gas or indeed nuclear but gas is the most responsive in a way but net zero we're, we're planning to take these off the the natural gas power stations off by 2035 to have a completely decarbonized grid and it, it, it there's no technology that can make that happen no, there really isn't. And the trouble is now that the, the, the sort of the, the net zero maniacs have, have taken hold of almost every major political party. I think Reform is the only party that is touting, you know, what they want is, 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 is net zero immigration, but not net zero uh, for the actual carbon offset business. But we've got now a situation where I think the London ULES um, collection fees reached 224 million last year, 224 million pounds. So that's going to make Sadiq Khan's budget um, completely and utterly dependent on charging people to drive in London. Now, that's not cleaning the air, is it? It's charging people to pollute it. Yeah, that, 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 that's absolutely right. I have to, the, the other thing, Mike, that, that's happened this week, or if that happened last week, is the government has decided Ofgem is meant to be the energy gen, uh, regulator that's protecting consumer interests. And it is giving... Ofgem a statutory duty to promote net zero, i.e. it is going to promote net zero above the interests of consumers. Mm. So that's just a charter for green rent seekers. And it's in a very, very uh, bad development for, for energy bills and for households across the country. Mm. Yeah, because all that's going to happen is we're going to be trapped in this sort of never-ending spiral, which only goes in one direction, of other people's energy um, being charged to us. And then subsidies being given to companies who are making an absolute fortune, um, like Ecotricity, for example, Dale Vince's (laughs) outfit, um, you know, where he's living very happily, uh, then giving some of that money back to Just Stop Oil. Yeah, and and to the Labour Party, I think. (laughs) It's just, it's just absolutely mad. So, I mean, where does it all end, Rupert, is my question. I don't know when it will end, but it will end, Mike, because at some point reality gets the better of, these, of this green hallucination that, mm. we're, that we're going through. Uh, and at some point, there is going to be a politician who, who says, 
net zero is a fantasy and it's an extremely expensive fantasy and it's one that the country can't can't afford at some point that will happen when it will happen i can't you know who knows but at some point it will happen because there is this reality and that reality is unavoidable yeah it really is uh, good to talk to you rupert thanks very much indeed rupert darwell author of green tyranny on the news that basically britain it keeps having to fire up the coal plants the coal power stations in this country guess why because the renewable energy sources are not very reliable. Uh, the latest to hit this particular situation is, of course, our new solar-powered farms, which have become less efficient whenever it gets a bit too hot. So let me get this straight. I know I may not be a scientist, but you have a solar panel which absorbs the heat from the sun uh, and then transforms that heat into energy so that you can power something else with that electricity. But apparently, solar power is only good when it's not too hot. So instead of actually getting more power from the sun when it's hotter, they get less. Something wrong with that picture, isn't there? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Talk TV. We're going to speak to Tim Luckhurst very shortly on the uh, system that's going on uh, down at the Houses of Parliament with Carolyn McCall from ITV. Uh, first, though, let's go back to Holly Hudson, who's in Nottingham for us for Talk TV. There's some tributes coming in uh, for the school caretaker, Ian Coates, who was named as the third victim uh, of those attacks yesterday. Holly. Yes, as I said uh, last time we spoke, Mike, we hadn't heard yet much about the third victim. This is the man that was found dead on Magdala Road, just over a mile away from me here on Ilkeston Road. But he has now been named locally, as you say, as Ian Coates, a caretaker. Uh, he is the man that was found dead, found fatally stabbed on Magdala Road and whose van is believed the attacker stole, hijacked before running into, driving into a number of people in the city centre, leaving one critically injured. Now, the school where Coates worked described him as a much-loved colleague who went the extra mile for pupils. The head teacher said he's much-loved, always went the extra mile, and he will be greatly missed. As a school, as a community, it will take time to process this deeply upsetting news. Now, as we know, there were two more victims. I'm on Ilkeston Road, as I say. This is the, well, as you can probably hear, one of the main routes in and out of the city. It's very busy. It's a very studenty area. And this was where Barnaby Webber and Grace Kumar, two 19-year-old students, were walking back to, just murdered, just five minutes away from their home. Killed, uh, stabbed to death and found by police at around 4 a.m. yesterday morning. And we've seen a bit more police activity taking place um, at the scene uh, here this morning. Mike, as you can see behind me, there is a police officer also guarding a property believed to be linked to the suspect. Now, no new information from police as yet overnight or this morning. Uh, they say that no more arrests have been made, of course, and that they don't believe anybody else is involved. We don't know yet any more about the attacker, about the suspect, the 31-year-old man in custody. It is believed that he is a West African migrant here legally with a history of mental illness. But as I say, nothing more confirmed from police. Today, Nottingham waking up in morning, a series of vigils planned and taking place, the first of which will be at 4pm this afternoon on campus. Thank you, Holly. Uh, Holly Hudson there talking in to us from uh, Nottingham, live there. Um, let's talk to uh, Tim Luckhurst, Principal of South College, Durham University, of course, former media executive himself as well. Uh, we've all been watching this uh, Philip Schofield hearing, which is kind of what it really is at the moment, going on down there in front of the Culture, Media and Sport Committee. Uh, we've heard several MPs asking questions of Dame Carolyn McCall. Kevin Ligo is also there, the head of, uh, of television. Uh, quite an extraordinary morning for them, Tim. Very good morning to you. Yes, um, indeed, an, an interesting morning. And Carolyn McCall, her colleague Kevin Ligo, the head of television at ITV, and the company secretary, Kyla Mullins, have been giving a very, very clear and very emphatic account of their perspective on this story. And it's quite clear that rumours about a relationship between Philip Schofield and the person referred to as Person X were abounding at ITV from 2020 onwards. And Carolyn McCall said that she was aware of such rumours. But at no stage did those rumours ever come to substantiated allegations. Time and time again, according to the senior ITV people, they asked very hard questions of those on the programme, directly to Philip Schofield and directly to Person X. Was there a relationship? And at every stage, the answer offered was an emphatic no. Mm. 
But I wonder whether that was enough. But let's have a look at what uh, she said about Philip Schofield and how she feels about his uh, current state of health. I don't, want to I don't want to make those comparisons, although I would say I think he has been hounded and I think he said himself that he has nothing really. If it wasn't for his daughters, he wouldn't be alive. He said that publicly. And are you, you personally, individually concerned for his welfare? I'm very concerned, yes. I, 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 look, I spoke to him the day before just because I knew that him standing down from this morning was, was a pretty major thing in his life. Um, I actually phoned him and just said, look, you know, I know this is very difficult uh, and, uh, you know, Kevin has offered you um, further work. Uh, so, you know, please don't feel awful about it. There, there is more, you know, and he was really grateful that I'd called him. He said, look, this means so much to me. Um, I didn't know he was going to say on Friday that he had lied to us and that he had hidden this for so long. Um, but no, we have been concerned uh, about Philip. And we've been extremely concerned about Person X because the level of intrusion in his life is, is, is unbelievably awful. So despite how concerned they were, despite the level of intrusion, despite all of the offers of counselling, despite all of the things that she's saying, um, she didn't seem to be too worried about Holly Willoughby kind of throwing him under the bus when she returned from her holidays to take the show on by herself. Well, I think it's fair to say that lying to your employer is a very serious offence. And what appears to have happened quite emphatically at ITV is that for year after year, both Philip Schofield and Person X insisted that there was no relationship between them. That it appears to me, and I'm genuinely convinced by this evidence, that the question was asked on many occasions and a lot of support was often offered to Person X, who was clearly in need of such support at various points during those years. But at no stage was there any candour about the nature of the relationship. And what really is the big question, I think, is did Person X not speak about the relationship because he was under pressure from Philip Schofield not to do mm. so? Or did he choose not to reveal it? Well, that I is, think that is the $64,000 question, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I don't think that Carolyn McCall or Kevin Ligo are the ones who can answer that. Their internal investigation will try to get to the bottom of it. Their internal investigation will be led by King's Council. It will be detailed. And of course, they've said that they will publish the findings. But I think the only way we are going to find out whether Philip Schofield put Person X under pressure or not is if that investigation is thorough and conducted quickly. I hope it can be. Yes. But these are all things that go back, as she says, to sort of 2020. And she almost sort of attempted to say that it all got sort of hurled into uh, abeyance by by the lockdown um, at the end of the day. But also, we also do know from other people's um, accounts of what was going on at ITV that Person X uh, was quite, um, shall we say, open about being with Philip Schofield at all times. He was up on stage when they won an award. He was the only person uh, who wasn't actually one of the people involved heavily with the cast or crew, even though he was an assistant. He was also present at various other events that, that Philip Schofield was at. I mean, it seems incredible to me that nobody thought that there was anything going on. Well, I think there's a difference between thinking there might be something going on and having evidence which is emphatically denied by those who might be involved in the, in the relationship. I mean, what do you do, Mike? You've got two people who it appears are close friends and the process by which he was appointed to ITV was explored in detail this morning and it's clear that he was recommended as someone who was a family friend of Philip Schofield that was the phrase that was used and that he entered ITV through the proper process with with a work experience program initially and then being placed on the runner's rotor all of the process appears to have been done through the normal and proper procedures but what was happening at every stage was that the relationship was concealed by one or both of those involved in it. Both denied it. Whether that was because of pressure from one or the other, we will have to wait mm. and see. Yeah. But I, I think I think that ITV actually made a very, very effective appearance before that select committee. They went through their processes candidly. They explained what their procedures are. They explained their corporate culture. They also made it clear that some of the criticism 
is coming from disgruntled former presenters. Well, as a former television executive, I can tell you, when you fire presenters, they don't tend to say very nice things about you. <laughs> while they work for you, they say very nice things indeed. Yes. It's a strong thing, that, isn't it? It is strange, isn't it? Hypocrisy doesn't begin to enter to cover it. But but one final question to you, Tim. Um, a lot of people have said to me, what the MPs bothered about this for? Why are they involved in it? I think it's quite an important thing for them to look into, isn't it? I think it's a legitimate thing for them to look into. But my own view of this is it's really a scandal which has been blown out of all proportion. Yes, this is this morning. It's a popular television show. It wouldn't be on television if it weren't commercially successful. And I recognise that Philip Schofield was for many years a very highly recognised and very popular presenter. But in the end, this is showbiz gossip, which has taken on much bigger significance that it really deserves to have. Mm. And I think that we should understand that there's a difference between what the public's interested in and what's really in the public interest. This isn't high politics. It isn't really about the way that we're governed. It isn't really about economics. It's not going to affect anyone's lives except for those directly involved for whom it will be traumatic. Yes, it's a shame, but really it's not significant. Okay. Tim, thanks very much indeed. Tim Luckhurst, Princeton of South College at Durham University, former BBC executive, of course, as well. We've got more to do. Coming up uh, in the next hour, we're going to be taking more of your calls, of course. Annabelle Denham is here. Uh, she's going to be telling us what she made of that COVID inquiry yesterday and much else besides. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Prime Minister's questions underway. Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer going at it uh, over which people should be getting a peerage, uh, it would seem. They're still arguing about that in the middle uh, of a cost of living crisis, still arguing about uh, who should get what out of the parliamentary system, uh, which seems to me uh, to be rather the wrong route to go down. But we shall see uh, exactly why uh, they are doing that, because we'll bring you Peter Cardwell a little bit later on with the greatest hits from the uh, Prime Minister's questions as we speak. Coming up, Annabel Denham is going to be joining us, Deputy Comment Editor of The Telegraph. We'll get her take on the political section of the world right now, exactly what is going on in Westminster, exactly why they can't stop the boats, exactly why even more migrants have come over the past three days than since ever last November. Also, we'll talk a little bit about Suella Braverman. She's going to get tough on migrants. She's making a statement in the House of Commons a little bit later on. We're going to talk about the COVID inquiry as well, because it got underway yesterday, and much of the the news that would have been published and publicised very highly and heavily by both uh, us here and elsewhere in the media uh, was overshadowed, of course, by the terrible events in Nottingham. Uh, Suella Braven will be uh, speaking about that as well uh, in about half an hour's time. We've also been covering the ITV boss, Dame Carolyn McCall, uh, who's appearing before a committee of MPs talking about the Philip Schofield scandal. So an awful lot uh, to uh, digest, an awful lot to get stuck into. We'll take your calls, of course, as well. 03444 1,000. But let's say very good afternoon to Annabelle Denham. Annabelle, how are you doing? Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, we had another kind of GDP figure that popped out of nowhere this morning. I suppose we were all expecting it, but a very, very small amount of growth, 0.2%. Uh, it would seem as though the, uh, the leaders of our great nation, uh, both in opposition and in government, are arguing about who should be getting a peerage. Yes, exactly. It's Nero fiddling while Rome burns, Mike. Yes, we've had April's GDP data. Uh, it's, it was 0.2% growth. I suppose we have to cling on to the fact that it was at least some growth. However, poultry, I think the question now is whether the UK is going to be tipped into recession. What is going to happen in the Eurozone? What is going to happen in America? I think if you see wobbles there, then we could well catch it, perhaps just in time for a general election, which may now take place next spring, next summer. Mm. So, you know, it perhaps is something to cling on to. Um, but the fundamental point remains that our economy is in an absolutely dire shape. Uh, the Tories have not proven themselves to be a safe pair of hands at the tiller. They haven't proven themselves to be economically competent. What we have now are the highest taxes in seven decades, a highly regulated economy. Yesterday, we had ONS data out on wage growth, which was absolutely massive. Now, real term wage growth has actually fallen. But nonetheless, for it to increase by 7% is pretty massive. 
that in turn is going to place additional pressure on the Bank of England to further raise interest rates, which is going to mean that those who hold mortgages, those who have fixed term mortgages that may be coming to an end, uh, those with you know tracker mortgages are really going to start to feel the pain, which is why we had the Prime Minister yesterday saying the banks should try somehow to cushion people from this. And I think that's really that really reeks of desperation mm. when you have a government, a conservative government, no less, which is attacking businesses, which is uh, placing some blame perhaps on banks. It's obviously done this with supermarkets with that idea that perhaps it will be introducing some form of price cap on certain basic goods. When you get to that position, you know, I think it really indicates that the government is just clutching very desperately mm. at straws and doesn't have the answers to uh, a number of our economic woes. No, really doesn't. And we saw Chancellor Jeremy Hunt in your newspaper this week talking about, um, you know, possibly cutting taxes, but he's not very, he's sort of very um, sort of cogent about it. He doesn't seem to be very sure where he can do it. Well, I think his diagnosis is correct. Uh, we've got to do something about productivity, which has been sluggish since the global financial crisis. Nobody is really sure why, but I suspect the regulation has a lot to do with it. He's also right that we've got to find ways of trimming the size of the state. The state now is absolutely mm. massive. It is growing ever bigger. Look at how many public sector workers there are, many of whom are demanding pay rises. Unless this can be addressed, tax cuts are simply impossible. And what we have is the Conservative government government having uh, suggested that there might be some TP reduction in income tax. The problem they have is that that's almost baked in now. So people will be expecting it. If they don't get it, then they'll be disappointed and the Tories might pay for this in the polls. But even if they give it to people, they're still going to be wanting more. So electorally, politically, this is not a solution. And I'm not convinced that there really is any appetite to properly address how we uh, cut back on government spending. It certainly seems like everything is moving in the opposite direction. It really does feel like that, doesn't it? Let's talk about the government's COVID inquiry, which has been uh, relatively kind of controversial in and of itself, even though it only just got underway properly sort of yesterday. There's been arguments about WhatsApp messages, about uh, how many redactions will have to be made about what evidence will be put before them about who they won't be speaking to um, and it sort of started for me with a bit of a whimper yesterday. Well, I think that's right. And obviously, it was descending into farce long before we even had the first hearing. I think it cost around £85 million before the first hearing. The estimates now is that the cost could exceed £500 million. We know that it is going to be extremely expensive. We know that it is going to last a very long time. What we don't know is if it actually it's going to answer or even ask any of the really important questions like why did the, lock the first lockdown in beyond the three weeks? Mm. Was the idea of the first lockdown not to squash the sombrero? Why was it that lockdown sceptics were uh, shut down? Why did the government continue with banning outdoor meeting once they knew that transmission risks were extremely low? These are really important questions. Why weren't there thorough impact assessments of the, the cost of lockdown, of what the economic and social cost would be, even if we were able to prevent some people from dying of the coronavirus? Was lockdown, you know, really blunt policy tool actually necessary at all? Because we saw uh, countries like Sweden uh, presenting uh, citizens with the information and allowing them to take and judge risks, uh, perhaps according to their own uh, health conditions and so on and so forth. Mm. And why didn't we have that here in the UK, but instead the COVID inquiry is beginning to look like um, less scrutiny and more scapegoating. So yesterday what we did have were the left-wing shibboleths being trotted out about Brexit being to blame for I the I couldn't fact believe Brexit got mentioned in the first day. I mean, that was incredible. It really was. Perhaps we ought to have seen it coming. Austerity was also mentioned, you know, that austerity that we saw uh, after the 2010 general election. Although, actually, funding to Public Health England for the prevention of infectious diseases actually increased over that period. So to say that it was stripped of funding and therefore unable to deal with the pandemic when it arrived on our shores is simply wrong. So lots of questions that need to be asked. And yet here we are focusing on Brexit, on austerity. Um, we know that the the bereaved families are going to be placed at the heart of this COVID inquiry. The chair, Baroness Hallett, has said as much. Um, and that suggests to me that we're not going to have some kind of cool and calm, thorough analysis of lockdown, whether it's necessary, whether the costs and the benefits have been adequately weighed up, but rather some kind of group therapy exercise mm. with some virtue signaling 
uh, added to it. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a mistake to include them. I mean, I said this last night on the talk. It's terribly sad that people lost loved ones and it's not nice to see people who are clearly upset by that. Um, but by and large, and people think this is a controversial statement, most of the people who got COVID didn't die. You know, 1% of the population who tested positive for COVID over the period of time that we had it died. That's a very low number. And, and actually, it's half the number of people that die every single year anyway. So I think the amount of damage that was done uh, to try and prevent those deaths, and we know that from that lockdown report, again, that you guys published, um, mm. you know, you're talking about saving maybe 1,700 lives, not, uh, you know, not the 400,000 that uh, Neil Ferguson said were going to die. No, that's right. Between 1,700 and I think 6,000 mm. lives, according to analysis uh, from John Hopkins University. So, yes, that's, that seems to be very small, certainly uh, in comparison to the social and economic costs of lockdown. And we, you, you say about placing the bereaved you know, at the heart of, of this inquiry. But what about the lockdown bereaved? What about the children who were deprived of their education? And that might have an impact on the jobs they get when they're older or their future lifetime earning. What about the people? who didn't die of COVID but died of other illnesses and they weren't able to see their loved ones mm. before um, before passing away. You know, are those people going to get some kind of voice or is it simply, as I say, going to be an opportunity for those whose family members died of COVID, whose deaths could perhaps have been prevented had lockdown been implemented sooner, had it lasted for longer? Are they the ones who are only going to get a fair hearing? And I think this is immensely problematic, especially yeah. when you consider how long this is set to drag on and how much it's going to cost. Exactly right. And I think you're, you're absolutely right to say that they should be the ones who are more the subject of the inquiry. You know, the people who uh, died as a result of the lockdown, not as a result of COVID, uh, which is probably going to be a far bigger number at the end of the day. And I think the other problem for the COVID inquiry is the fact that they've asked people who are going to it um, to please test for coronavirus. And I mean, you just kind of, your heart sinks, doesn't it? Yes, and they've requested uh, that attendees take uh, lateral flow tests of over a year after the government uh, banned or scrapped rather uh, free lateral flow tests um, and certainly had scrapped uh, mandatory self-isolation. So you know, that, I think, was a strong indicator of really the, the paranoia and hysteria that was capturing the COVID inquiry and a pretty strong indicator of the direction that it's going to go in. Uh, whether people did have their lateral flow tests, whether they actually were forced you know, forced to have um, a negative test before going in. I, I'm not sure. But just the fact that that was being requested, just the fact that that was being advised mm. uh, was a, a pretty uh, portentous. Yes, I would, have, I would have said so. We're going to take a little break. Annabelle, stay with us if you would. We talked to Annabelle Denham, Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph. We're going to come back uh, with a remarkable story from City Hall here in London uh, where Sadiq Khan uh, and the people inside of the uh, London Assembly have been told not to say things like, Ladies and gentlemen, because it might cause offence. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.